This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Drs. Jeffrey A. Jenkins and Justin Peck to discuss their new book, Congress and the First Civil Rights Era, 1861 to 1918, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2021. The book explores how congressional Republicans, aided by the political activism of Black citizens in the states, enacted laws aimed at establishing an inclusive, multiracial democracy. During the Civil War and Reconstruction, Congress crafted a civil rights agenda, including laws, strict enforcement mechanisms, and constitutional amendments. The book focuses on the conflict within the Republican Party and electoral trends to argue that policy enactments are are a consequence of and window into evolving attitudes about civil rights. And the book's granular political history, but very readable, demonstrates how legal institutions created by majoritarian bodies like Congress can be used both to liberate and protect oppressed Black minorities and to assert the power of the white majority against those same minority groups. Jeffrey A. Jenkins is Provost Professor of Public Policy, Political Science, and Law. Also, Judith and John Petrosian Chair of Governance and the Public Enterprise director of the Bedrosian Center, and director of the Political Institutions and Political Economy Collaborative at the University of Southern California's Saul Price School of Public Policy. Justin Peck is an assistant professor in the Department of Government at Wesleyan University. In addition to his work on Congress and civil rights, he's engaged in a project that seeks to understand how the United States' role in international affairs leads to the production of new political ideas and to the reform of domestic political institutions. I'm delighted to welcome him and Jeffrey to the New Books in Political Science podcast. Thanks for having us, Susan. Thanks for, ha- thanks for having me. Happy to be here. You write that the history of Black civil rights should be understood as two distinct arcs. And originally, the book was to cover both before you decided that they each needed their own book. Uh, we have listeners from around the world and also many subfields in political science. So so what are the two distinct errors and, and why does the period 1861 to 1918 matter so much for understanding the political history of Black civil rights? So uh, when we first started this project, uh, this was probably a good decade ago, uh, we looked at a 50-year period um, between 1891 and 1940 that uh, most people ignored. Uh, we wanted to essentially see whether anything was going on there in terms of civil rights. 
people talked about the earlier period. People talked about the most recent period. And in covering that, uh, we recognize that civil rights really extends across really the entire period from 1861 to the present. Uh, we finished that paper. We got it published in the journal Studies in American Political Development. And we then thought, well, you know, there's a book here. There's a book to be written on this, this big period of time. And we can do it. And over the course of a number of years, we wrote uh, a bunch of conference papers on little pieces of that. Um, what we came to realize, though, is that, you know, if, if we were going to write that book, it would be like a Dan Carpenter-sized book. It would be like a thousand-page book. And Hey, wait, I went to school with Dan Carpenter. <laughs> no picking on Dan Carpenter on the podcast. Yeah, I, mean, go ahead. I mean, Dan's great, but I don't think either of us have the, have the we didn't either have the stomach for that kind of book, right? We didn't have the, the perseverance no, to, 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 to do that over a really long period of time. So we thought, you know, it would be great to chop this into two pieces. Does it make sense? actually pull it apart and, and, and cut it in pieces. And when we looked at the, the, the material that we had already written and uh, some of the material that we were planning to write, it seemed like there was a logical break right around the end of World War I. And uh, we could see that there were essentially two different arcs of civil rights over time. There was the first arc and the second arc. Uh, and it was sort of a, a, an arc that built towards something achieved that something, and then that something began to erode uh, over time. And 1861 and 1918 told that first arc pretty clearly in our mind. And the second arc, which we're working on right now, uh, really starts right after that, right after World War I in the 1920s. And both of those arcs look fairly similar in our minds. Not, not identical, right? We'll, we'll be able to you know, tell the, the listenership a little bit more about what that second arc might look like relative to the first arc, but pretty similar. And we thought that it made sense to tell the story in two books, making it clear that there were arcs in each, and those arcs were fairly similar. I think, too, uh, we build on, I think it was C. Van, the historian C. Van Woodward famously called the 1960s civil rights movement the the second reconstruction. So there's a kind of um, background to the idea of there being two distinct moments of sort of like heated uh, civil rights politics. I think where we step in is that the 60s is oftentimes taken as its own thing and the post-immediate post-Civil War is taken as its own thing. And what we're trying to do is to tell the whole story about what goes on at those like hotspot moments that people tend to know something about but also in the periods bef both before and after so that we can, so that we can logically and I think substantiate the claim that these truly are arcs with a kind, something like a kind of beginning, middle and end uh, and rather than focusing just on the beginning or treating the sixties as its own sort of this story that begins and ends. We want to draw that out uh, in this kind of era or arc argument. No, and I love that you're using 1918. Um, I recently had Allison Parker and Jill Watts on the podcast, and both of them are working on this sort of earlier period and the important kinds of institutions, mistakes, uh, shifts in, in party alignment that happens then that actually make sense of what happens in the 60s. And so it's really great that you're, that you're not leaving that out and having it just sort of uh, come as if fully formed. Um, Justin, Jeffrey mentioned many conference papers. 
Um, this is a, a collaborative project. Um, how did the collaboration come about and what kind of writing, writing process do the two of you use in the collaboration? The collaboration started uh, when I was a graduate student at University of Virginia in a, I think it was a seminar that I took with Jeff, um, where we started working also with Veshla Weaver, who's now at Johns Hopkins, on the first paper that Jeff mentioned uh, when he answered your question. Um, Veshla moved on to other things, and Jeff and I continued this project, and it's basically just been uh, a series of papers that go up on Dropbox that, you know, we decide sort of like topic-wise what each of us are going to cover or year-wise what each of us are going to cover. And then we each kind of go through and write our section and then post to the Dropbox. And then we reread each other's and make whatever changes are required and then kind of try to make sure that there's a sort of coherent voice through the book rather than having, you know, two distinct sort of voices um, that are, we're trying to put together into uh, one whole um, and so it's more or less just a constant kind of like writing and revision process through a bunch of uh, shared documents. Uh, what's the status of the second book? Will we be will we be seeing that uh, soon, or how long is that? I mean, it's it's no, obviously yeah. this. I mean, reading this book, it is clear that this is not a book written in a short period of time. Yeah. And I'm guessing that the second one covers really, in a sense, a longer period of time and perhaps more complex history. So. Um, I don't mean it as a, it should be done. It's just a question. <laughs> Depends on what you mean by soon, right? Academic soon. Uh, so we have, we have material written for a good chunk of the book, say from 1919 through 1960. And we've got uh, material written for the Fair Housing Act that we're revising right now. Uh, we have a plan in place to cover uh, busing. And uh, busing is going to be a big chunk of the back end of this book. It's a it's a lot of what goes into the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, it's really about 15 years of contentious debate, votes, angry back and forth. Uh, we've talked a little bit about how to end the book. Um, you know, should it go up to 2021? Uh, what, 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 you know, if we're going to look at markers from the first book, what would be similar markers for the second book? And... We don't have a, a, a plan in place 100% at this point, but we have some pretty good idea about um, the material that we haven't yet written, where things will end, what material to maybe go into a conclusion, right, rather than an extensive substantive chapter. So I would say that it's, uh, it's, it's fairly well along. Uh, we just have to cover some really important periods yet. And... We haven't had the luxury of conference deadlines in the last 18 months or so. Um, I, haven't, I haven't presented at a conference since SPSA, Southern Political Science Association, in January of last year. And uh, those conference deadlines, even for you know, people my age, are still pretty useful, right? As you know, you got to get something written on paper in case you embarrass yourself. <laughs> I, I think, too, that the, you know, the point you made about Increasing complexity is also something that we're bumping up against in book two because uh, the, our, the, this one is Congress focused in part because we believe that Congress is kind of under discussed through the period that we that is covered in the book. By the time you get to the 1940s and beyond, 
you have the, to add the president in plus the beginnings of the bureaucratic and administrative state through which a lot of civil rights politics uh, is channeled by the time you get to the 1960s and 1970s. And so that that trying to take all of those things on adds a level of complexity that we did not have to deal with really uh, in book one. So we're also figuring out uh, how to how to do that in a way that takes those things seriously without also trying to cover ground that we're not it's not really part of the project to cover. Well, and and in the first book, you have the luxury of an end date, but you actually don't because, you know, as as Jeff said before, where are you going to end it? Uh, are we in the same arc as we as we were? Does the arc really go 1918 to 2021? Or, you know, as it's often hard to know when you're in the middle of a realignment, are we in the middle of another arc? I mean, it's it's a really it's a harder it's a harder ending for you guys for the second one. So I wish you luck with it. Now, in this book, you're covering a lot of ground. Um, and as you know, we already have a lot of history of Black civil rights in the post-Civil War era. But uh, Justin, as you were just underlining, you're, you want to offer a policy history and you want to focus on Congress rather than the presidency or the Supreme Court. And, and one of the questions that, dri- that is driving this book is you know, how the same constitution can be used as a mechanism to, these are your words, you know, liberate oppressed minorities and to assert the power of the white majority against those same minority groups. So let's actually start with how you answer your own question for, for this particular era. And then, and then maybe we broaden a little bit to, to help, because I think the book also is saying something about American politics more, more generally. But, but let's start with this period. You know, wh- what is going on in this, in this in the period? Give us the big main claims um, of this book. I think to start that where we begin sort of with the the intro chapter covers the kind of lead up to the civil war and then we move into the civil war and then we move out of the civil war and so i think one thing that we're really doing is tracking in some sense we take what's going on in congress as kind of a proxy for let's say white majority public opinion because you know demographically whites are a majority in the united states and so what the white majority thinks about a certain thing has an obvious relevance for what Congress is doing. And so one thing that we're tracking in the book is in particular the way that uh, white majority voters are responding to the political activism and political claims of black people in particular, but also white people on the ground in the North and increasingly moving to the South, especially after the war, to try to sort of bolster northern forces in the south and get a kind of civil rights movement going and so part of the story is about the way in which white opinion turns uh, by the kind of like 1875 or so northern white opinion turns against the reconstruction project and civil rights generally for black people and as soon as that happens we begin to see a kind of erosion and wearing away of the coalition that brought post-Civil War civil rights into existence. And so one, one thing that's distinctive about Black political rights in the United States is how much they rely on support from white people and white people's opinions about Black civil rights, especially on the question of enforcement, uh, fluctuates pretty significantly. And so part of the story is tracking that fluctuation. Great. And, and, and that is... Uh, um complicated by the fact that if you don't have a vote, how is it that you would express yourself 
if 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 we were if a majority rules and if in a state they can change the laws, then you don't really have much of a mechanism unless you can go to another branch of of the government. Um, uh, Justin's already referenced uh, the, the period that you're really focused on, but let me back us up just a little bit and ask you by to just briefly lay out the context in which this Republican coalition was created. What did Congress look like? Um, how important was slavery to congressional politics in the period right before this? You know, so, so how is it that Congress, as you describe it, moves from not discussing slavery under a kind of a gag order to putting it front and, and center? Uh, and then we can talk a little bit about this Republican coalition that, that was built um, to do this. Uh, Jeff, do you want to start? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So in the antebellum period, so before the Civil War, the two major parties for much of that period, um, the Democrats and the Whigs, are both interregional coalitions, which meant that they had both representation in the North and the South. And because of that, uh, slavery was a wedge issue and an issue that would do damage to both parties. So they did things, you know, in union to effectively keep slavery off the agenda, but slavery was something that continued to bubble up. And by the time we get to the 1850s, the Whigs had effectively disintegrated as a second major party and the Republicans emerged as the main competitor for the Democrats. And the, and the Republicans were an all Northern party and they were organized around the notion of preventing slavery extension to the West. So at the core of what the party was, um, slavery was there. You couldn't, you know, sweep it under the, under the rug. Slavery was a part of the Republican Party. And when the Republican Party came to power eventually through uh, Abraham Lincoln's election in 1860, um, the South saw that as the final nail in the coffin, that they could not exist any longer under the United States system and maintain their power and their peculiar institution, slavery. They secede. And the Republicans decide that rather than let them go, they're going to try to hold them in the Union through a war. Uh, we spent a whole chapter on what slavery meant to the Republican Party during the Civil War, because it meant different things to different parts of that, that group. So once we move into the war, the existence, the, the main existence for the Republican Party, or the, the thing that held them together before the war, was preventing slavery's extension into the West. Well, you know... Essentially, some of that is already dealt with now, right? I mean, the South secedes. We're now in a war. We're in a new world. So what is slavery going to mean to our coalition at that point? And uh, a segment of the coalition, the radicals, wanted to essentially bring slave, uh, you know, the enslaved people up to essentially the white par in society. They wanted to make them equal in all, in all aspects. And that was a minority view for a good chunk of time. Uh, Lincoln did not have that view. He did not hold that view. Uh, and certainly the conservative parts of the Republican Party did not hold that view. So over the course of the war, what slavery meant to the Republican Party changes. Uh, we move from, well, you know, slaves, some of the enslaved are actually going to walk north into uh, Union camps. What do we do with them? How do we treat them? Do we just hand them back to the Southerners? Do we treat them as, you know, uh, property that we've captured? Uh, eventually, uh, in order to essentially continue to promote the war, uh, 
Lincoln and the radicals come to the same conclusion, and that is to essentially keep Northern opinion behind, you know, support, especially in the face of all the casualties that were going on. The war had to mean more than just holding the Union together. It had to mean something bigger than that. And that's where essentially eliminate eradicating slavery came from. So by the time we reached the, 18, the 1863. Um, Justin, let me ask you to describe it for, for those who are not uh, as familiar, these sort of three factions, um, Jeff's mentioned the radicals and the conservatives, but can, can you just briefly lay out what the, these sort of three main factions that will come to represent the Republican coalition are? Right. Yes. Um, so, I, I mean, I think roughly uh, we treat the Republican Party as comprised of three groups of n- unequal size. So th- the smallest group uh, is, like Jeff said, the radicals, who are people who would have been abolitionists through the 1830s, the 1840s, 1850s. These are people who believe in the immediate eradication of slavery by federal action. Uh, that's the smallest subset of the Republican Party, though some of the most important Republican leaders in this period are part of the radical faction. So this is somebody like Thaddeus Stevens uh, in the House of Representatives. The moderate wing of the Republican Party, uh, probably the biggest section of the party, are people who uh, were in no way racial egalitarians, um, but these are people who, like Lincoln, were in opposition to slavery's movement west primarily because these a lot of these people saw the west as the place where white the white laboring class was going to go uh, to work for and to build a, a sort of like labor middle class out west and the concern was that if slavery moves along with these white workers there's no way that white workers will compete with slaves and that's a problem for the white workers. So their opposition is to slavery's movement west, but not for racially egalitarian reasons. And then the and so they they get on board with the the movement to get rid of slavery as as we move through the 1850s and then as the war begins. And then there's the conservative faction of the Republican Party, which is more or less dragged along. And then when the war ends, uh, basically sees the eradication of slavery, like Jeff says, as, as the consequence of the war, but to then more or less stop. We, we'll, we'll, we'll write the 13th Amendment into the Constitution. We'll say that there cannot be slavery, but at, at that point we're done and we'll let the South basically go back to something that looks vaguely similar to or a, a lot a lot like slavery, though not slavery itself. And so what we cover in the book is the kind of competition between these three different groups as they're trying to hash out compromises to reconstruct the union after slavery has collapsed and after the 13th Amendment has has legally outlawed uh, the institution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And one of the best things about the book is the spotlight that you put 
on the interaction among those three groups. And and I don't want to say that this is like a, a page turning uh, mystery novel because it's not. But it but it 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 is given what you're trying to do, which is to really get to the this vote led to this possible. I mean, it is really small politics. Given that that's the aim and that that's what you're doing, it really does read beautifully. It really does read like something in which you are waiting to find out who will in fact concede who, <laughs> and sometimes I know what the outcome is, but I still, I still found it really, really compelling. So I just want to say that it's hard to write such a granular history and also have it be readable and interesting. And so congratulations, because that, that's definitely accomplished here. Um, a lot of people are more familiar with what happened in the 1960s in terms of civil rights then and can name the laws. Uh, and I think few people really understand this early civil rights era and the extent to which uh, the Congress is, is doing some very, very important work in terms not just of the bills that they pass, but their, their understanding that they need constitutional amendment and also that they need enforcement in both. So would you just explain a bit about what Congress actually did in this period? What were the grand, the grand accomplishments before we talk about why it failed or, or not failed, why it didn't sustain over time? Sure, sure. Uh, so Justin mentioned the 13th Amendment, right, which, which abolishes slavery for all time. The 14th Amendment, which we speak about all the time today, right, in terms of uh, preserving due process for everyone, um, and the 15th Amendment, which, you know, essentially eliminates race, color, and creed as criteria for preventing voting rights. Uh, we have the Civil Rights Acts of 1866 and 1875, both of which were important in their own rights for various things. Sometimes we talk about the 1866 Civil Rights Act today as well. Uh, we have a bunch of enforcement acts, right, to essentially give the president of the United States power to go into the South and make sure that the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the 1866 Civil Rights Act uh, are allowed to play out and that the Southerners respect those things. Uh, and a number of other smaller things that maybe we've forgotten over time. Uh, but those I, are the I think, big too, ones, that it's sure. important to, like, we created the idea of civil, the first civil rights bill is the civil rights bill in 1866. And so like the notion of what civil rights means is, is created at this time. What, because members of Congress say, okay, we have these freed people. What do we guarantee them now that they have been freed? And so the, I, the, this is the first time we have to actually sit down or legislators have to actually sit down and come up with a list of, okay, here are the rights that all citizens of the United States are guaranteed that we construct the idea of national citizenship out of the fort. So these are like, these are formative moments because one thing that one thing that's notable about civil rights is civil rights are different from social rights at that time. And, and as we move forward. And so what Congress does is to say, we'll create this idea called civil rights. We'll say that civil rights means rights to contract, right? Basic sort of property rights, right to, you know, criminal justice, that type of things. But social equality, we're not going to touch. Social rights, we're not going to touch. And that it takes until we get to the 1960s to get to 
dealing with social inequality, but the notion of there being civil rights is entire, or my view of it is, is entirely a function of an effort to distinguish what the federal government says all national citizens are entitled to versus other rights, which may be nice, but which we as you know representatives of the federal government are not going to enforce or defend. And this becomes the real, the real flashpoint in Congress uh, between uh, different segments of the Republican Party. This really was, you know, radical with a small r. The notion that uh, we're going to essentially establish uh, a fairly strong set of federal rights right, at a time when the federal government was small. Most people didn't want the federal government doing much and were afraid of the federal government stepping on individual rights and states' rights. And segments of the Republican Party weren't willing to go very far on some of these things. So just like, you know, if we were studying the U.S. Constitution, it wasn't something that was just kind of hand, you know, handed down uh, and everybody agreed. You know, these were political compromises. What the 14th Amendment looked like, what the 15th Amendment looked like, those were political compromises, uh, you know. We spend a good amount of time in the book, for example, talking about why the 15th Amendment looks the way it does and that it, it essentially disallows certain things from being used as criteria, but not other things. And by not going down that road, going down very far down that road, that allows for the sort of disenfranchisement that we see later in the 19th century. Uh, no, and I think that the, what, what's fascinating about the book, though you're focused on Congress, is that the distinctions that Justin mentioned, the social versus civil rights, are precisely the ones that then the Supreme Court relies upon in Plessy v. Ferguson and, and, as, and as things continue. And though Elena Kagan doesn't cite your book, unfortunately, her you know, dissent two weeks ago in Bronovich versus DNC is dependent on the argument of your book. It, it, her, she, not everybody has had time to read the dissent, but what she is saying is that unless you understand the period, unless you understand the passage of these civil rights acts, the passage of these amendments, and then the undoing of them, you can't possibly understand the Voting Rights Act. And, and she's trying very, very hard to impress upon people the the importance of this moment, this reconstruction moment, for us to understand why limiting the vote, for example, in Arizona in terms of time and place, is is not cut from new cloth, but needs to be understood in context. It's very similar to what Ginsburg tries to do with history in Shelby versus a holder. But really, Kagan could have, she could have pulled some really, really good passages from, from your book. Yeah, please. Um, okay, so the Republicans are, uh, are successfully, with these three factions, put together this package. It's very, very impressive. They argue about these distinctions, and they're and they're and they're remarkably able to pass the legislation. Sometimes with the help of a few Democrats. Um, and the book is also very, very good at reminding people who don't remember that the Democrats were the party of segregation and states' rights, and that there's been uh, fluidity in who defends um, uh, white supremacy uh, in the United States. Why, why did this fail? What, what, what happened such that this did not sustain itself um, from, from what you've looked at? Yeah, I mean, this is, 
this is one of those questions that historians <laughs> have been uh, taking up, you know, probably since Reconstruction ended. Um, I think the book, the answer that our book provides, I think, is to say that um, by around 1875, uh, essentially northern voters uh, tired of the project. Um, and what's going on in the South through this period is significant political violence uh, and a, a, a coordinated roughly campaign of political terrorism waged by white supremacist groups like the KKK, the Knights of the White Camellia, these kinds of state level organizations of uh, white clans running around, intimidating black voters, intimidating black people out of participation. And that requires, uh, in a sort of, in the way that we understand, if we look at a place like Iraq, the constant need for troops to be in a place to try to stabilize a violent and unsettled situation. That requires money, that requires the federal government's intrusion into the states. And essentially the story that we tell is that among Northern whites who are the only supporters of the reconstruction project, as soon as they tire of it, and as soon as they say enough is enough, then slowly over time, the Republican party, which really exists only in the North and increasingly the West comes to accept that as the, basically the sort of median position of the country is we've had enough uh, and then oh, slowly from 1875 really forward, you see a kind of constant erosion and um, sometimes an explicit repeal of what had been done after the war. And so I think the, the bottom line answer for us, I think, is that Northern white opinion turns against what happened between 1865 and 1875. And as soon as that happens, things start to go in, into a kind of reverse spin. And I think that... Um... In combination with that, um, the Southern whites uh, during this time uh, were intensely interested in turning back the clock, essentially regaining power. That was never going to end, right? So you had a, a Northern public that went along, but never intensely felt that the Reconstruction Project was something that was vitally important to them. While you had a group in the South that wanted nothing more than to eliminate it. So when you think about it in those terms, then it was kind of a, you know, inevitable that this would, this would turn. And there was an economic flashpoint. There was a, a, a panic in 1874 and a, and a resulting depression. And the North was hit, North and the West were hit very hard. And when they were hit very hard, they said, you know, well, let's, 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 jettison this Southern project, this reconstruction project, and you are Republican members of Congress, start doing something for us. Start focusing your attention on us. And when that happened, there just wasn't enough attention. There wasn't enough enforcement. There wasn't enough anything left to hold the Republican South together. I, I just want, I, I think the economics that we don't play probably a ton about on the economics, but I think Jeff's point about the panic is important. And I think this this is relevant in the in a contemporary context too, because white white voters are hit hard by the Panic of 1873. That comes alongside a debate about government spending, and you know Reconstruction required huge amounts of federal expenditures, and this is happening at the same time that there's a discussion going on in the United States about 
you know, going back on the metallic currency and getting off the, the paper dollar, which had been issued during the war. And so you have the kind of like economic currents that are also definitely working against those in Congress who are supportive of reconstruction, which requires an active federal government spending a lot of money to put troops in the South and to support Southern efforts in the South to reconstruct the economy there. And it just, the, the kind of momentum becomes we move into sharecropping and a sort of different, not slavery, but something that also binds black laborers, keeps them in place, prevents them from moving. And that becomes the way we can reconstruct the Southern economy is to go into a sharecropping system so that cotton can get moving again and the Southern economy can start generating value again. Each chapter of this book uses a variety of data and sources. I mean, you're using everything, the introductions to bills, the texts of the bills, legislative proceedings, debates, roll call votes, uh, newspaper coverage. And and you are paying particular attention to roll call votes, which is interesting because this week there was a lot of talk about roll call votes on in this Congress. But explain, and, and as you read this book, honestly, if you've never run a regression or you don't know what they even are, you would be fine. I mean, this book is accessible to anyone who has interest in civil rights and this era from any discipline and from and just as a serious reader and I want to encourage everybody listening that this is this is that this is the case but but there are others who will be very interested in in how you uh, use methods so talk a little bit about why these roll call votes were of particular interest to you and how you are analyzing them using statistical measures such as nominate and regression analysis and, and how you chose to keep the narrative, in a sense, separate from the, um, the, the, the methods. So we wanted to focus on, you know, we, in trying to figure out what to cover, we wanted to focus on things that we thought would change laws, right? Change the reality in the South, change the reality for the former enslaved, the free peoples. And roll call votes were, you know, a, a, a credible source to, to examine. Uh, they would allow us to see where people stood on particular issues, right? Uh, that they couldn't walk back on. It would be right there on, in paper, right? A, a, a constituent could take a look and see where, you know, Joe Blow voted on this particular bill. And it, it made for an easy way to kind of um, establish a coherent story for us uh, going forward. And you're right. We didn't want we didn't want this to uh, take away readership from what the book could do. Right? We wanted you know law professors, historians, political scientists who were qualitative scholars to pick up the book and not be turned off by anything. Yeah, I think another thing that was useful in particular about using the votes uh, or using roll call votes is that what we part of what we do or one of the things that I like most about the book is the is the effort to look at uh, things that were on the agenda that could have been enacted but were not uh, and a lot some of those things are incredibly radical ideas like getting rid of the south as as we understand it and redrawing lines and redrawing the states in the south like do and or running the south from washington dc as it turning it back into a territory and then running it from washington dc was on the agenda and so one thing that votes allow us to do is to say 
all right, let's look at what was possible, what got a vote, who voted for things that failed, and then who also, and, and so we can help, that helps us categorize the Republican Party by saying, all right, this subset of voters vote for this clearly more rad, or this subset of legislators vote for this clearly more radical option. Then when we get to actually what is passed, it looks another way because this other group says, okay, now we're on board. And so it allows us to look at the Republican Party as a kind of coalition. It also allows us to say what was possible versus what was enacted. And then, like Jeff said, it allows us to explore the kind of clear positions that individual legislators are taking at a time when the federal government really is pushed by Congress. Rather than today when you have the president doing lots of stuff on his own, that wasn't possible then. So Congress is really all the positive momentum in federal government happens there. And by looking at votes, you can see sort of where people stand on these incredibly controversial subjects. Throughout the book, you emphasize that Republicans in Congress were aided by the political activism of Black citizens in the states. And I'm wondering if you could give us some examples of of how that worked, uh, whether the Black legislators uh, elected to Congress during this period uh, affected outcomes or external organizations like Black churches, Black political organizing. So uh, one example that, that comes to mind immediately and something we've written on, not just in this book, but separately as an article, is uh, the Blair Education Bill in the 1880s. And this was an attempt to essentially create a primary school system, uh, a federal primary school system throughout the country. And uh, it was quickly realized that the only way this was going to be possible was to effectively segregate the races, to create black schools and white schools. And... Uh, Despite that, um, a lot of black activists, a lot of black groups, black organizations came out for this. They realized that education was going to be one major route that they would have to take as a new group, a new freed people in society in order to become, you know, true U.S. citizens on equal footing with whites. So while they may not have wanted to have a segregated school system, uh, that may not have been ideal for them. They were willing to accommodate that if schools would be created if their children and their children's children would be educated. Um, and you see a lot of support for Henry Blair's education bill during this time. And for a while, it like, looked like this was going to happen uh, throughout the 1880s. There was white support. There was black support. There was a lot of support from the South. Uh, eventually, it, it is essentially you know, killed by the same sorts of forces that killed Reconstruction. Northerners didn't want to pay for it. Northern constituents didn't want to pay for it. Uh, it was set up such that most of the tax revenue would go to areas where there was a, a large percentage of illiterates. And that was not in the North. That was in the South. And Northerners didn't want to essentially subsidize a system that would educate kids in the South, kids outside of their area. Um, that was a, it was a, a big point in you know, what could have happened even after Reconstruction in this country, right? how, how life could have changed significantly for African-Americans if that bill had gone through. And we wanted to spend a good amount of time talking about it. Today. I think, too, one thing that uh, we don't do, and it's just not part of the sort of vision of the book, is, is local political activism. But I, I think it's clear that 
Stephen Hahn, for example, a historian, has done a lot of work on kind of like black political organizing in the South. And I think it's clear one, one thing that it, we do cover in the book is the way in which black citizens are being elected for the first time in American history. And state governments throughout the South are electing black legislators. And to follow on Jeff's point about educa- education becomes the a, a overriding concern for freed people, uh, in part because it was illegal for slaves to be educated or was punishable by death in some cases. And so the, 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 the notion of the public school funded by the state is a, entirely a construct of black political organizing after the war, black legislators at the state level, rewriting state constitutions throughout the South to say that public education will be funded by taxes then the state will will provide education to its citizens. Now, as soon as whites take over, a lot of those things are ero- either unwound, reversed, ignored, whatever. But I, I think the idea of state-level citizen organizing, in particular on the question of education, to me stands out as one of these things that it is, we live with the legacy of it. It is an important and central feature of Black activism following the war. No, and it's not the focus of your book, um, the political activism of black citizens in the States. I'll shout out somebody we've had on the podcast, which is Nicole Myers-Turner in her Soul Liberty, where she's looking, again, very granularly at black religious politics and post-emancipation Virginia. She's doing that kind of work. That's not like that's not the work you're doing. Yours is very complementary to some of these other kinds of histories that are um, that are that are that are out there and important for us to read to get the full understanding. Um, I loved the book. Like I loved the book, and I could make a long list. Uh, I've already said some things. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you one thing though that bothered me about the book, which had to do with with gender. Um, I'm wondering what the role of, I I mean, I'm familiar with the 15th Amendment emancipation debates, particularly about whether or not to include men, uh, all men, all men and women, uh, whether white women or black men, you know, should should get the, uh, the right to vote first. But also in terms of naturalization, in terms of marriage, the way that coverture would then be extended to black men, which would give them supremacy over their wives, something that they had not had the power of that white men did enjoy. So I, I'm wondering, um, like at the end of this book and now writing the second, what what is the role of gender in any of in 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 this kind of political moment and the the kinds of things that Congress is doing? Um, yeah, this is a, this is uncomfortable <laughs> uh, as two men in particular, but also that it during the debate over the 15th Amendment in particular, the idea of including women was brought up and immediately it was treated as though it, it was dispensed with with such ease that it is, I was genuinely surprised by how quickly and easily that was treated as an idea that is just not likely or possible or that few people took seriously. I think that that's in particular notable because, you know, Eric Foner has done some research and others have done research on the way in which, uh, you know, early abolitionism as a consequence of women's groups organizing in the states pushing abolition. So you have female political activism long before the Civil War. You have female political activism 
after the Civil War in particular and temperance organizing and some of the work that Theda Scotchpole has done on gender is important on this question. I think it's challenging as people who are studying Congress to understand what's going on in particular on the question of gender because women are eagerly not allowed to participate in what's going on in Congress. So it's easy to, to not see them, even though backstage what's happening, some of the most significant political reform efforts of, of the period that we're looking at are motivated by, generated by, and carried out by women who can't vote. And so in, in this book, we don't, we miss it because what we're looking at is, is a space that where women are not allowed to participate. And so it's not because we don't think that the role of women is unimportant in this moment. It very much is. It's just not something that is Congress can take account of really in the way that we explore Congress. And it's also, um, you know, the, the title is Congress in the First Civil Rights Era. So civil rights could mean a lot of different things. And as we go into book two, it could certainly mean a lot of different things. Uh, one of the things that, that Justin and I have talked about at length is, you know, clearly this book, this first book is about black rights, the creation of black rights over time uh, and the erosion of black rights. Uh, if we write Congress in the second civil rights era, do we want to kind of hew to that same standard? Because there's a lot going on um, in the more contemporary era that would fall under the, you know, the umbrella of civil rights. Right? We, 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 we take some baby steps in the first book to talk a little bit about that, right? The, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act occurs in 1883, and that was a big part of one of the big the, the citizenship debates that we cover in some depth in here. Um, and, you know, uh, we thought it was important to mention that, but we also thought that, you know, that was, you know, we're, you know this first book is already 300 and some odd pages, right? And right. the second book, if we extend, if we really expand the definition of civil rights and talk about, you know, all of the aspects of civil rights, um, it could be, you know, really hard to get our, our arms around. Um, so one of, one of the, probably the first things that we're going to do in the second, in the second volume is, is say, you know, here's what we're going to do in this book. And it's not going to be for everyone. And it's not because we don't think these other things are important. They're very important. Um, but to maintain kind of some consistency with the first book and to create a project that the two of us can finish before we retire, <laughs> we're maybe going to take a narrower view of what civil rights means. And it's quite possible that, you know, Justin and I or somebody else could come along and write that third book that deals with civil rights that doesn't involve black rights. Because there's a, you know, there is a third book that you could write on this across time for sure. No, in the period that you're talking about, and in fact, the debates that you're quoting from, in, in those same debates, there are conversations saying, well, you, you don't mean Indians, like we can't possibly not exclude Indians from buying liquor, for example. I mean, there's all sorts of remarkable moments in these same debates in which people are saying, well, this wouldn't mean we would have to enfranchise the Chinese, right? Question mark. Or what about the Irish in the East who right. are are being limited? I mean, there there's or gypsies. All sorts of people get mentioned in these derogatory ways, and in interestingly, 
by the people who are promoting black civil rights are saying like, no, 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 no. We're not talking about like Indians, not tax. We're just talking about, about African, uh, no, they wouldn't say African-Americans, but so we're, we're talking about one particular group. No, it's, it's an, no, I, and I understand you, you should limit. And, and I think in terms of gender, I love the answer that you gave here. And I think that that, that like provides helpful context. Um, before we wrap up, I, I, one of the reasons that you wanted the two books has to do with the way in which this first period illuminates the second error, the, the one that more people are often focused upon. So uh, what is it about this first error that sheds so much light on the second era of civil rights for you or the second arc? which is, I think, your preferred terminology. I think one, one way to think about it in our, in our view is um, the way this first arc plays out is very consistent with uh, something called the electoral connection that people in American politics and, and just the study of politics talk about all the time. And that is your member, members of Congress are only going to do good work for you if you can keep them accountable. If you have the votes to be able to essentially make sure that they hew to their promises and they maintain their votes and their support for you. And what happens is once any, you know, once the group of people that had existed that uh, supported civil rights vanished, um, nothing got done for black Americans anymore. So by, you know, the 1890s, the first couple of decades of the 20th century, there was nobody really in the country that was that had the vote, that had suffrage, and wanted to do anything positive when it came to federal civil rights. This begins to change in the 1920s due to the first great migration. So you have a, a you know hundreds of thousands of African Americans from the South moving to the North for better jobs into the urban into the urban areas. And when that happens, they have the vote moving outside of the Jim Crow era. Uh, and two, their votes will matter in terms of whether the Republican or the Democrat gets elected. So the member of Congress, and for the first couple of decades of the second period, it's going to be Republicans. Uh, Republicans now have an incentive. Certain Republicans now have an incentive to push civil rights again on the agenda. And then when uh, the New Deal coalition comes along in the late 1930s, Northern blacks become uh, a leg of that coalition and become important for FDR and the Democratic Party. So suddenly, black Americans and black civil rights become possible again because there is support once again. There is a coalition now in place again that is going to try to ensure that those rights get ensconced into law. I think Jeff has done there giving the like the bright side story, which is that is about (laughs) Uh, in part about the way in which migration <laughs> brings civil rights back onto the agenda. I, I think one thing that I think is important that links both periods or the consistency is where we see the limits of the civil rights coalition that comes into existence. And it tends to be, I think one thing that links both of these periods is that Northern whites in particular seem to be very happy to enforce civil rights laws on the South, but very reluctant to allow those laws to be enforced on themselves. And so where the civil rights movement fails in the first period, which covered in the book, is 
oftentimes in the North and any, a lot of the failures that we look at in this book are law are laws that are written in a way that would suggest that they would also apply to Northern whites. And as we move into the later period in particular, now we've been focused some on busing and fair housing and any type of language that looks like it could make life uncomfortable for Northern white voters is off is written out of laws or becomes the point of contention. And so one thing that links certainly both of these periods that I think is important, an important lesson that I at least try to, or I hope comes out of this book is the way in which Northerners in particular need to evaluate their role in, in perpetuating a race, a, a system of racism because they're unwilling consistently to apply the same rules to themselves that they are more than willing to apply to the South. And I, I'm a Southerner, so I'm in particular uh, interested in that because the South rightly is criticized for a lot of things, but the North doesn't get off uh, and is not innocent in this story either. Um, thank you both so much for joining me. This is a terrific book. It really impacts lots of scholarship, lots of thinking, lots of policy thinking. As I said, Elena Kagan could have it had uh, yet another, maybe slightly better footnote in her decision <laughs> with the help of it. Um, Jeffrey Jenkins, Justin Peck, the book is Congress and the First Civil Rights Era, 1861 to 1918 from the University of Chicago Press, 2021. We're encouraging people to go into their favorite brick and mortar bookstore and buy this rather than go to the unnamed. Um, and we have a link on the show notes to bookstore.bookshop.org, which will pull it from a brick and mortar. But uh, Jeff, Justin, do you have a favorite brick and, brick and mortar that you'd like to call out on the show and encourage people to visit? Sure. Uh, in, in Los Angeles, if you're in LA County or, or the city itself, go to Skylight Books. Uh, I was in there a couple of days ago and our book was featured prominently right in, right in the front of the store, which made me quite happy, made my week, my weekend. And I live in New Haven, Connecticut. So if you're in New Haven, Atticus Books is what I would recommend. I've, I've spent many hours in Atticus Books with food and, and reading. <laughs> yes, well, thank and you. a coffee. <laughs> and a coffee. Um, thank you both so much uh, for joining the podcast and congratulations on a, a really wonderful and engaging book. Thank you, Susan. Thank you so much.